Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cultured Woman's Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, Kayla, and this week we have Dr. Tiffany Hunter from New York and OBGYN. Hi, Dr. Hunter. Hello, Kayla. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. So uh, hello to everyone, to all your listeners. Uh, My name is Tiffany Hunter. I'm an OBGYN. Um, I've been practicing for 10 years now, last month, made 10 years in obstetrics and gynecology. Um, My current um, practice model is a hospital-based group where I actually work in a rural part of Long Island, mostly taking care of Black and Brown women, um, immigrant women, uh, but it's, it's, it is pretty mixed as well. I do participate in uh, resident and medical student education as well, which is um, a very near and dear passion of mine, my heart. And um, the focus of my um, practice, in addition to education, is to reduce maternal morbidity and mortality in my um, sphere of influence. Um, And I know we'll get into that in a little bit as well, but um, that's a little bit about me career-wise. Personally, I am newly married um, to a friend of mine who we have known each other for 20 years, and he finally just came to his senses, (laughs) and we were (laughs) married in March. Um, So, yeah, so we're we're excited to begin this part of our our life together. so yeah, I'm sure we'll get into more of my life as we answer these questions. Being a, a Black woman, um, I kind of bob and weave in and out of the different aspects and dynamics of what we'll talk about. So yes. um, I'll leave it at that. So, yes. Um, so for the listeners, if you don't mind, would you be able to explain the history of obstetrics in relation to Black women? Sure. So when we talk about obstetrics, it kind of sounds like we divorce it from gynecology, which nowadays the two are very much married. And so to talk about Black women in this field, I talk about it from a gynecologic perspective. So we go all the way back to slavery days. And gynecology, um, as most of us know it, is Dr. Sims. And Dr. Sims was one of the first surgeons um, here in the Americas, one of the first gynecologic surgeons. And his patients and nurses were slaves. Um, And so he honed and refined his craft on our ancestors involuntarily after traumatic labors, after having uh, birth injuries and things like that. He would then um, experiment his surgeries on these women uh, with slave women as his nurses and assistants. So our role in obstetrics and gynecology helped both to develop the field as patients, um, but also as medical practitioners um, in that we were his surgical assistants. So we have now come full circle as as practitioners in, in the field. And while uh, it is it has been long unrecognized pertaining to our role and our contribution to obstetrics and gynecology, there is now a movement to recognize those women who gave their bodies and their lives for what we know now. 
So a lot of the instruments that we are using, i.e. like the Sims retractor that was named after Dr. Sims, they're being renamed. There's a movement to rename them. The Sims retractor has been renamed the Lucy and things like that after these women whose bodies were broken for what we now know and do. So even though we just talked about Dr. Sims basically experimenting on enslaved Black women to perfect his practice, um, are there any positive and negative influences that were brought about? Negative, we could maybe say like birthing on the back or discouraging mobility or anything else that you can think of, or even positive? When, as it pertains to the birthing experiences of women back then, one of the large... Um, one of, one of the um, overarching causes of morbidity and mortality for women today um, is the same cause of a large part of morbidity and mortality for women back then, and that was postpartum hemorrhage. So women would labor um, and then be forced to go right out into the field, and they would oftentimes bleed out. And so, you know, the negatives of that are that experience, they were not, there was no recovery just from knowing what we know about slavery, of course, they would not be treated with humanity and with If I could, you know, speak to a positive, um, out of that, there was some surgical technique that was that was learned, specifically the repair of, of fistulas, which are abnormal fusions of two organs that do not belong together, like a vesicovaginal fistula, which is like a joining of the bladder and the vagina, which leaves a tract to where women would actually have urine coming through their vagina, which is obviously abnormal. Um, So so out of this, um, out of the the detriment and the horror of abnormal labor and mistreatment did come that positive. But again, those women who were experimentally operated on against their will without consent were never given any credit until now for essentially giving their bodies to science. So in my experience with college, you mentioned that you are, you work with residents, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in my experience with college, whenever the subject of race comes up with my professors, the conversation usually ends up falling in the Black students' laps. Uh, We're usually expected to kind of educate our non-Black peers and they usually seem disconnected majority of the time. And then you're also feeling like you have to educate the educators that you're paying tuition to be educated by. So how do you protect your students from trauma porn that we're consistently exposed to um, and expected to kind of just pick up and keep going as if everything's normal? How do you take the approach of teach in regard to, you could even say cultural competency? Yeah, so so that's a really, really heavy question that I I don't know that I have the right answer to, but I will tell you how I approach it. So I do a lot of mentoring. I mentor um, third and fourth year students who want to go into obstetrics and gynecology. And oftentimes the underrepresented students fall into my lap. I don't know if it's from comfort or they're pointed in my direction or you know, divine intervention, however it is they, they end up with me, I'm grateful for it um, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to help them. And a lot of what they experience is, as you put it, um, trauma porn and, and other people's miseducation, willing ignorance yes. as it pertains to 
Um, just the struggle of being a medical student. Um, but the struggle of being a medical student who's an underrepresented minority. And the um, I have to undo the um, the down puttings that they have experienced prior to me because up until me, they have been told they can't or they won't. Um, and a lot of what I do is rebuilding their confidence in themselves. On the floor, when I'm educating the residents, and when we have rounds, we do rounds collectively. And what I do to directly combat systematic racism, when they put it in my lap, I put it back in theirs, right? And that's, that's and, and it's unfortunate that it feels like it's our responsibility to educate our educators. It's not, and it shouldn't be. Everyone should be doing their own work um, just like we do our own work continuously and and with full effort to um, to build ourselves and to uh, move past everything that we have to get past to be successful. We're constantly working. Everyone else should do their constant work if they call themselves an ally, if they call themselves, um, if they, you know, a non-racist or I don't have issues with colorism mm -hmm. or whatever. If you identify as such, then you need to be doing the work. It shouldn't fall on my lap to educate you. However, here we are. So when issues come up, I put it back on them right? Like, this is what we should do in a situation like this. Something like pain management. If a patient is in pain, something as simple as giving her pain medicine, not looking at her race or ethnicity and saying, oh, well, such and such people always complain of pain. I was just in there five minutes ago. She wasn't in pain because she was watching television. Right. That was five minutes ago. Right. A lot could have changed. <laughs> A lot could have changed in five minutes. Right. So how about you go and reassess the patient and not assess her rate. Right. So there are things like that, that like we have to make people accountable and we have to, and part of education, right. Part of learning is stretching. It's growing. It's, it's doing yeah. things that you've never done before. Right. And people have to be just like we're uncomfortable and we continue to be uncomfortable in certain places and spaces. And we um, still fight. We are that. used. Exactly. We yeah. are used to it and we learn how to adjust and adapt in those places and spaces. They have to do the same thing. And we have to hold them accountable to do the same thing. Look at yourself. Look at what listen to what you just said. Is that a statement of a caring non-biased, non-racist provider? I don't think so. So rewind, readjust, and redo what you just did or undo what you just did, right? And it's a constant, it's a constant process. It's a constant uphill climb. But if, for those of us who are in positions of power and positions to educate it's unfortunate and it's not our responsibility but because there's so there is so much systematic racism and there is so much disparity if we are to overcome it we have to constantly be making people uncomfortable not in a quote-unquote confrontational way because confrontational carries a, not, a, a negative, negative connotation yeah. But not all confrontation is negative, right? 
even if it means pulling someone to the side and be like, listen, what you just did, I'm going to say to you what you just said to that patient and you tell me how it sounds. That's confrontation. It's not negative, but it's, it's a form of educating. It's a form right. of making people take responsibility for their responses and hearing and seeing the things that they do to others based simply on someone's outward appearance or how someone identifies themselves. So you said earlier, you said um, willing ignorance, and I like that because right now we like to use implicit bias, and I don't like that word because it like leaves no level of accountability or responsibility right. to the person who has those views. So how do you think non-Black healthcare workers, um, not even necessarily just OBGYNs, it could be nurses or CNAs even and other professionals, how do you think they're contributing to the Black maternal health statistic? So I think there are contributions at every level. Um, and it, it really does depend on interactions with the patient, right? So in some, in some you know, institutions, you know, the nurse has a majority of the interaction with the patient more so than the physician. Some institutions, the MA, or in my hospital, we call them PCTs, they have, mm-hmm. you know, a majority of the interaction. So depending on the level of interaction, everyone has their their role to play. And again, something is, and, and this has been well documented, um, especially in the obstetric and, um, and, and emergency literature about pain management as it pertains to race. Um, and so people are um, given pain medication, um, not by what they identify as their pain scale, but a lot of times what they identify as by their race. And so, you know, whether they're reporting their pain to a nurse, whether they're reporting their pain to the um, MA, they may not be the ones to to dispense the medication, but they're the ones that relay the story, right? right? If I come to you and say, oh my goodness, Dr. Kayla, this patient is really, really in pain. Without even seeing her, what are you gonna do? You're gonna write, write for that script. Tylenol, right. right? But if I say, you know what, she in there texting on her phone. What are you gonna do? Okay, she, she can wait, right. right. She can wait, she's not really in pain, right? And that's, and so so even if you are not the one directly dispensing the medication, if you're not, you, your perception of the patient, we don't realize how our perception of the patient carries forward, right? When we're on something like rounds, where we're going around the floor, talking about the patients, reporting them, it's supposed to be objective, right? Medicine is all supposed to be um, objective with the exception of what the patient reports to us. That's mm-hmm. subjective, right? Right. We are supposed to be looking at things through an objective lens. That doesn't always happen because we're human um, and because we all carry with us our own perception, the nuances of how we were raised, where we were brought up, our cultural biases, uh, and how we were taught from home to our schooling to our medical training and so all of that influences how we report on patients and how our patient care experiences are guided you could have two patients in the same room having had the same procedure and when you read and taken care of by the same nurse and when you read their um patient care experience record it reads totally differently Hmm. why is that 
because if they're two different races or if they speak two different languages, their care is going to be different. So how do you go about trying to be attentive and responsive to your patients then? So I try to think about each patient systematically, which is difficult because each patient is not just a group of organ systems. She's a person, right? She has her own individual experience. So there's a delicate balance that has to be, you know, kept in, in, in play. But trying to systematically go through the same things with each patient the same ways, even down to writing my orders, writing orders the same ways for each patient. Everyone gets 800 of Motrin, Q8, PRN. Everyone gets 975 of Tylenol, Q8, alternated with Motrin, PRN. That way, there is no discrepancy as to who gets what, as long as they want it, it's there. Exactly. Mm-hmm. As long as they want it, it's there. And I tell them every four hours, you need to ask my patients if she needs pain medicine. Unless she tells you, unless she's sleeping and she asks, asks you specifically when I'm sleeping, please don't wake me. My patients need to be asked about their pain care. Another thing I do is I speak to patients in their native language. And this is something that I deal with a lot in my patient population because a lot of my patients are not English speaking. And so there is already a power dynamic that exists in medicine. I mean, doctors, you know, we are gods among men, or so we think, right? (laughs) We can do no wrong. And so this power dynamic is seen all throughout the patient interaction. We speak in words that our patients don't understand. When you go to medical school, you learn 50,000 new words, essentially a whole nother language. And then we come into our patient's room and we speak with these lofty words, and then we leave not explaining anything in plain language. And then we wonder why patients don't follow up or patients don't follow our instructions and we label them as non-compliant. Well, you can't comply with what you don't understand, right? right? So I make sure to explain to my patients everything that is happening to her, everything that could possibly happen to her in her own language because language discrepancy is also a power dynamic. So, so I, you know, and, and, and where I work now, a lot of the nurses will say, oh, well, I understand a little bit of her language. Okay, that's fine. But does she understand yours? You, right. And can she ask you questions that you understand enough to answer? And if the answer is no, therein lies the power gap. Because now you're telling her instructions and you have you have taken away all of her power to have any say and to ask any questions about her care. I recently walked into this patient's room and I was examining her. I just come on shift and I was examining her and I noticed a scopolamine patch on the back of her ear. And I asked her through the interpreter, I said, who put this patch on your ear? She said, I don't know one of the doctors. I said, Did you, do you know what they put it on for? She said, I, I don't know. And I said, okay, I'm going to take it off because you probably don't need it anymore. They probably put it on for dizziness after you got your epidural. And I made very clearly, I sat down, which is something we don't do as providers. It also creates another power dynamic um, because we stand over our over patients. Yeah. Again, another position of power. I sat down and I looked her square in her eyes and I said, ma'am, you never let someone do anything to you that you don't understand. 
It is your right as a patient to ask questions. If you don't understand, keep asking questions until you understand. You're not, you know, you won't make the doctor upset. And even if they get upset, that's not your problem. You are the patient and you need to understand what's happening to you. And I said, they didn't do anything wrong by putting the patch on, behind your ear, but someone should have explained to you what it was and why you why they felt it was necessary. And you should have said, okay, if you wanted it and no right. thank you if you didn't. And so these are, these are things that I think get taken for granted, unfortunately, and become ingrained in a culture um, of a unit or a floor or a hospital or a system um, where things are done to a patient without their consent and it becomes problematic and and it be, and it and it's not and i tell my patients gone are the days where i say you know i am the doctor hear me roar every decision we make um, is in share a shared decision making conversation and you have to understand what i am suggesting or recommending to you and what it's for and what your alternatives are and I have to give you the courtesy and the opportunity to ask questions until you understand. And so for those patients who are not offered that, that in my opinion is, is just as much um, the definition of poor patient care as it is you know, not treating their pain. What does advocating for yourself look like as a patient to you? You just said mm-hmm. that you know, she shouldn't have allowed, or not necessarily saying that it was her fault, but just for future reference, basically saying that, ask questions and make sure you know that what's going on with your body. And if you do or don't want it based on what answer you've just gotten, is that what she would basically frame as your version of what advocacy looks like then? Yes. My version of advocacy, and this is what I tell my patients, is as simple as asking questions. You know what they do? They go and they Google what you said. And then they'll come back to you and be like, you know, I looked up what you said on Google and you were right. And I'm like, well, thank you. $500,000 and 14 years later, I'm glad Google agrees with me. You know, and, and, and that's, that's advocate, self-advocacy in its simplest form. Why do I need this C-section? Uh, what is this medication for? Even as simple as why do I need so many visits? Why do you have to weigh me at every visit? These are things that are impactful in your care. And I think once we ask questions, and, and, and I try to be very, very open with my patients and very informative and I flood them with information. But people don't like to be talked at. People will remember, oh, well, I know why I need to be weighed. And she told me the importance of um, monitoring weight gain in pregnancy and how it pertains to my mode of delivery, my blood pressure, and my blood sugar control. And so I'm going to lay off soda and I'm going to drink water to make sure that my weight stays normal. That is more motivating than me saying, well, you need to stop drinking soda because your weight is... You know, you know what I'm saying? Right, I get you. It feels a different response. And so advocating is nothing more than at its at its beginning at its root asking questions bringing a list i tell patients all the time when you leave here you're going to send your car and you're gonna be like oh shoot i should have asked dr <laughs> hunter xyz put it in your phone cuz 
if you write it on a sheet of paper, you're going to leave it on your kitchen counter, right. but you're not going to leave your house without your phone. Put it in there, bring it and bring it up at your next visit. That's what your visit is for. Because me weighing you, taking your blood pressure, listening to your baby's heartbeat and measuring your belly takes all of five minutes. The other 10 minutes, that's your time for you to get those questions answered so that you can understand what's going on with you, what's going on with your health, what's going on with the health of your baby. Another part of self-advocacy is utilizing the tools that you have in front of you. So a lot of health systems have um, healthcare portals that you have access to. You have access to see what is written in your chart about you, what medications are prescribed to you. Right, like what my chart and whatnot. Exactly. Follow my health, all these things. Um, most large healthcare systems have it. Even the small ones have it. Um, you have access to your labs. You can look at your labs. Even I have patients who call me about their labs before I even see it. And they're like, well, I need to know why my RDW is a point <laughs> below normal. And I'm like, you're fine. You're not anemic. There's something called um, margin of error that's likely within the margin of error. But if you want to repeat it and you're uncomfortable with it, I can do that. I can send a script to the lab and that can be done if that makes you feel more comfortable. Or if you want me to refer you to a hematologist, I have no problem with that. So it builds a um, a sense of trust and accountability, Mm -hmm. right? So it, it, it narrows that power gap. It's like, okay, I'm double checking you, doc, and I'm seeing where... You didn't call me because my number was off. So now I'm calling you out on it. And most of the time, it's again, like things like margin of error or you're off by, you're under by, you know, a 10th of a point. And that's not anything medically or statistically significant, but it gives the patient back some control. So using, using your health portal, uh, and I find that a, I encourage a lot of my patients of color to use the health portal and they, and they don't. And and I get that. A part of it is, again, we have this distrust with the medical system. We have distrust of the government, rightfully so. We don't want anyone accessing our medical records and having you know, access to all of those things. And I get it. But these medical systems invest millions of dollars in making sure that these things are secure, that these portals are secure, because if they're not, it is Lawsuits. to their their advantage. And let's face it, medicine is a business, right? right? It's a business. No one wants their clients' personal information leaked, okay? Right. Because what are you going to do? You're going to take your business elsewhere. You're yep. going to go to the next hospital system that says, hey, see, we've never had any any leaks. We've never had any right. ransomware attacks. Come over here to us. Foolproof. Exactly. <laughs> Come over here to us. So I can't... I, I, I I can only encourage people to do these things as a way to to look out for themselves, not because and and most people don't go into medicine to abuse it to hurt or or even to make it rich because I got to be honest with you there are many other things I could do to make <laughs> way more money and get a lot more sleep right most people so most people go into medicine to help people the other thing I do. For, for as a part of my advocacy encouragement is to find, take the time to find docs who you do trust. Find docs who look like you. We exist. There are not a ton of us, 
but we exist. And most of us do refer to each other. We refer in our networks. We collaborate with each other. And so if you ask, we'll say, yeah, go see Dr. So-and-so. She's down the road. She's great for primary care. And I'll text her, you got an appointment for next week. Go ahead. You know, <laughs> so you utilize us help us to advocate for you as well. I tell my patients all the time, I'm sending you to Dr. So-and-so. If you don't get in contact with his or her office or you don't get an appointment in a week, call me back, I'll call them for you. Okay. And sometimes I have to do that very rarely. Usually the docs that I work with, we're very good at getting each other's patients in because we know we'll harass each other if we don't. But sometimes I have to do that. Right. And, and utilizing those of us who... Um, want to be available to you, want to be used by you, that's important. And so the three things for me, for the three big things are asking questions, using the tools that are available to you to know what's going on with your health and using those around you who are in the networks that support you or that you feel that you can trust. I think that was a long-winded answer to you. Oh, question. no, that came back full circle. So um, what are some of the most common questions that you get from your patients? Oh, that's a big question. Um, so <laughs> we can make lately, it a top five, top 10, whatever makes you happy. So lately, the biggest question that I've gotten from my obstetric patients is, am I going to die? Hmm. And it's a big, sad and scary question. And I assure them, that they're not going to die because I'm not going to let it happen. She had preeclampsia and she ended up dying. So I'm sure she knew how to advocate for herself and probably was, if she was on the other end of that situation, she may have been able to prevent that for someone else. Yeah. So I think for some of us who maybe working towards higher education and things like that. I think some of us view that as your liberation from those type of issues. And then you see stories like this and it's like, there's really no out educating yourself for situations like that. And you're still kind of at the mercy of, of those non-black yeah. people who mm-hmm. don't care I, for you in that way. I, that story for me is so heartbreaking and so gut wrenching Because, and I had to sit with that and I had to really ask myself the questions that you just said, how could this happen? Who I'm sure spoke up for herself, just as you said, who I'm sure probably even tried to self-direct her own care as much as she could. How could this have happened to her? And when my patients bring this up as they will, how do I reconcile that? How do I comfort them through that? And it's, and it's difficult because I, I, I got to be honest with you, Kayla, I'm still at a loss for words. I'm still at a loss for how in the 21st century, so pass from complications from preeclampsia. Yeah. How, how we let that happen. And someone let that happen. And when patients, you know, when it has come up in conversation, what I have told my patients and what I have told those members of my family is I am responsible for my actions and for my patients and for perpetuating a culture of appropriate evidence-based care 
for women of all races in all spaces, all ethnicities, all language speakers. And so for me, I can promise with every fiber of my being, I won't let that happen to my patient. I can't explain, I can't justify, I can't even fully understand what happened to her. I can't. So for me, it's, it's gut-wrenching, it's, it's, a, it's a slap in the face as a black woman, as an OBGYN, as an educator, as it, it conflicts and, and it's hard to reconcile all those parts of me as it pertains to this. The only thing I can say, the only, and it's not even a comfort, only promise I can give is that with every power of my being, I will not let that happen to my patients. And it's difficult. It's difficult because I'm sure it could be said that her provider could have promised her the same thing. Yeah. And here we are. So it's a difficult question to answer. And it's a difficult topic to bring up, especially when we talk about self-advocacy, because who better to advocate for themselves in a medical situation than a doctor? So what do you think needs to occur with the healthcare system for it to be safer for Black women in regard to childbirth or the baby being in utero, postpartum, Mm -hmm. any of the stages? Mm -hmm. So first of all, we need to listen to our patients. You have to listen to our patients. Um, We cut our patients off when they're talking within like 13 seconds or so of them opening their mouth. Because our brains are spinning with questions, we are not hearing what they are saying, right? So we need to listen to the patient. Even if the patient, even if what we're seeing lab value-wise, radiologically, may not align with what the patient is feeling at that moment, there is value in treating the patient and listening to the patient. And so I think... That is the first thing that needs to change. Now, that is difficult because the way the health system um, is moving, the direction that it's moving in is volume, right? Because reimbursements are low, we make money now by seeing more patients. Hmm. So in order to see more patients, each visit has to be shorter. Exactly. So I don't have the luxury of the time it takes for you to tell me all about how your body feels weird and you can't really put any finger on it and you have all these vague symptoms and I ask you concrete objective questions and you answer them in the way that I would expect you to and so I can't really put a finger on okay well this is what's wrong with you here's a script there you go I don't have time for that And so I kind of have to cut you off. I kind of have to do a quick exam. I kind of have to send you to the next person, never really listening to what you're telling me. And when I was in medical school, I had a teacher who always said, if you listen to the patient, they'll tell you what's wrong with them. And it's 100% true. And I can give you an example. Um, I had a patient This was in 2019, she was a young woman in her 20s. This was her third pregnancy and she came in to my office and she was newly pregnant. And she said, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not in like a ton of pain, but I feel really weird. Like I know what it, this is my third pregnancy. I know 
what it feels like to be pregnant. And I just feel off. And I feel like something's not right. Like something bad is about to happen. Mm -hmm. Now, I have learned to respect what we call the impending sense of doom. There are a lot of like a lot of disorders that that is tagged to and and it's real. And so I said, okay, so I examined her. She didn't have what we call a surgical abdomen. Her vital signs were fine. I said, you know what? My ultrasonographer is not here. I'm going to send you to the to the emergency room because I want everything to be done all in one place. It can be done somewhat expeditiously. Um, and I'll meet you there. So I sent her over. I wrapped up what I was doing and in hopes that by the time I got there, her imaging and her blood work would be back. I got there. Her imaging and blood work were done. But now she was exquisitely in pain. She was tender. She had rebound. She had what we call a surgical abdomen in a matter of like an hour and a half. So she was right. Like something was not right. However, her blood work was normal. She was not anemic. So it didn't seem like she was hemorrhaging. Her imaging did not show any masses or anything even remotely similar to an ectopic. But the patient and, and the ED doc was like, well, we don't find it. We can't find anything wrong with her. So we're going to send her home. And I said, this patient is telling me something is wrong with her. Her abdomen is telling me something is wrong. I said, I at least got to put a scope in her abdomen. If she'll let me, and if she understands the risks, the benefits and alternatives, I got to put a scope in her abdomen and I got to see what's going on in there, whether it's gynecologic or it's bowel related, something is not right. So he kind of shrugged me off. He was like, okay, she's your patient if you want to. <laughs> Needless to say, I took her to the operating room and she had a whopping ruptured atopic and a belly full of blood oh, that was missed. Mm-hmm. That was missed on ultrasound. And because she's young, right? And she was writhing around in the bed, her vital signs, the abnormalities of her vital signs, they attributed to, oh, well, she's writhing around and we can't get a good blood pressure and her heart rate is up because she's like moving around in the bed. No, her heart rate was up because she was bleeding out into her abdomen. And so if I hadn't listened to her, she would have went home and she would probably bled out. Ectopics are the leading cause of death for women in the first trimester. And it's not, and, and that's not to say that she wouldn't have been back or when, if she had been scanned again, they wouldn't have seen it. But it's to say that if we hadn't listened to the patient or if I hadn't listened to the patient, we would have missed an opportunity to treat her and to potentially save her life. And so for me, for the healthcare system, whatever it takes, we have to get back to listening to the patient. We have to get back to the bedside and from in front of our computers um, and in front of our billing screens and our coding apps. And all of that is important because like I said, business is, medicine is a business, but we gotta get back to patient care, which begins with listening to the patient. What tools do you think you need to make you the best obstetrician that you could possibly be that you may not currently have? <laughs> Time. <laughs> I need more time. Part of me would love to be a concierge OBGYN where I have like five or 10 patients a day and I can take an hour or a half an hour and listen to all of them. Because a lot of times what I do as an OBGYN is I would say 
45% medicine and 55%, well, 45% obstetrics or gynecology, probably 55% psychiatry and psychology. A lot of women, a lot of what we experience, um, we experience through our families, through the people we take care of. Um, we tend to push ourselves to the back burner. We take care of our husbands and our spouses and our partners and our children and our parents. Um, all at the expense of ourselves, our mental health struggles because of this. And all of this compounds um, and erodes our health. And so for me, a lot of what I do is, okay, your exam is done. Now let's talk about you as a person. Let's talk about, you, you mentioned when I asked, is anyone hitting you, threatening you, or forcing you to do anything sexual? You said, mm, not really. What does not really mean? Let's talk about that. And so for me, the biggest tool I would need is time because sometimes that snapshot of time, that moment of time is all you'll have with that patient for the year, if you're lucky, for several years, probably most likely. She'll probably never be back in this position again. And honestly, maybe her other providers, they may never ask her that question. And so you are the only one to hear that and to recognize it as being a problem and to delve into that. Cause that's probably where things are kind of spiraling downward for her. That's probably why she doesn't self care. That's probably why she doesn't come to the doc. That's probably why part of why she's suffering from depression and all of this impacts her health in, a, in its totality. So if you can help me get more time, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, I understand. So I do have one more question. Do you sure. take a lot of high-risk patients in regard to needing time and whatnot? I do take a lot of high-risk patients. And okay. <laughs> my, my patients, my patients who are lower risk, who are... How can I say this while being politically correct? Or just be who, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> who are a little bit more entitled. Okay. Can't understand why every time they come to see me, they have to wait two hours. And it's not always like that. For those of you who may want to come see me, it's not always <laughs> like that. But honestly, if I learn that, let's say, for instance, one of my patients was just if I just diagnosed her with a miscarriage I can't rush through that visit right I just can't I have to give her opportunity to grieve opportunity to feel however she feels I have to let her lay my head on lay her head on my shoulder and cry I have to cry with her I have to go through all of the options and then guess what? I got to go through all of those options again, because in her grief, she's not hearing what I'm saying. And that's normal. So I'm sorry. Some days I run a little bit behind. Some days I run a lot of it behind. But it's because I, I have to go with what's presented, what the patient presents to me. I have to listen to the patient. Yeah. Um, the cookie cutter time amount's not working for you. And that does that does not work for me. And and I and it's reflected in my patient panel. It's reflected in the fact that 
people want to come to see me and this is not to blow my own horn but people want to come to see me because their friends and their families talk about that and there are going to be a few who I've had patients who tell me listen this is my last time coming to see you because every time I come here I wait two hours and you know what I tell them I'm very sorry on your way out fill out a medical record release form so that we can send your records to where you want them to go. And I'm okay with that because then that frees up that spot for <laughs> someone else who wants me to spend that extra that 15, 30, or an hour or 60 minutes with them. Or understand I'm why okay. you're doing it with other people. Yeah. Exactly. And I've had patients who have, and I said, I'm very, I'm very sorry, but one of my, my patients earlier in the day, you know, had to have a complicated surgery, I had to explain it to her, or had a miscarriage, or their baby has a deformity that we just discovered on ultrasound. And they're like, I understand. You can't, you know, you, you can't foresee these things. I get it. Don't worry about it. And those, and that's a majority of the patients. Like, yeah. I want to be clear. That's a majority of the patients. The majority of patients, majority of human beings, at least try to be understanding. But those rare few who are not, I let them leave. I used to be offended by it. I used to try to persuade patients to say, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I let them go. So for the listeners who are either moms-to-be or expecting or just don't necessarily have this information, if you were to offer a Black mom specifically any advice on postpartum signs and symptoms someone may experience that would warrant them to go to the emergency room, what would those be? Uh, that's a really good question, Kayla. So there are several things that I um, counsel my patients um, on once they're being discharged from the hospital as reasons to call or come in or go to the nearest emergency room. The first is fevers. Anything greater than 100.4 degrees we need to hear about or you need to present to the emergency room Four. So a fever can mean um, an infection in your breast. It can mean an infection in your incision or an infection in your episiotomy or a tear if you had a vaginal delivery and uh, an episiotomy was cut or if you sustained a tear. Um, it can mean an infection in your uterus, uh, UTI, um, or even something like a blood clot in your legs, arm, or lungs. So definitely if you have a fever, we need to hear about it or you need to present to the nearest emergency room. The next thing that I advise uh, women about is bleeding. Um, after any delivery, bleeding is expected for up to six weeks and it may start and stop and come and go especially if you're breastfeeding or when your baby cries, you may get a little bit more bleeding and that's normal. And it'll change from a red, brown to yellow color and that's normal as well. But bleeding that is concerning that you need to present for is anything that causes you to soak through a pad in less than an hour for two hours or more. Or if your bleeding is associated with lightheadedness, dizziness, shortness of breath, feeling like you're going to pass out, you definitely need to go to the nearest emergency room because that could be um, a delayed postpartum hemorrhage. The next thing I advise patients about is their mood. After delivery, your mood is definitely going to change. Most women feel a little bit teary-eyed, a little bit overwhelmed. And, you know, moods shift and go up and down, but largely over time, they should get better and the trajectory should go up and things should be more positive. Sometimes that's not the case. And sometimes women need a little bit of help um, with medication 
or even um, as simple as coming in to talk to your doctor to be reassured that things are going to be okay. Um, sometimes, very rarely, women have um, thoughts of hurting themselves, hurting their children, hearing things, seeing things that their family members, spouses, partners don't hear or see. It's very, very, very rare, but it should that happen, definitely, definitely they should present to the nearest emergency room. And lastly, one of the big things I counsel patients about are signs and symptoms of preeclampsia. Preeclampsia is a disorder of pregnancy and of the postpartum period. Um, it's associated with high blood pressure, typically protein in the urine, but not always, because um, there are different flavors of preeclampsia. Um, and it can go along with other symptoms like headache, visual changes like blurry vision, loss of vision, pain under your right breast, pain under the center of your breastbone, shortness of breath that's new or different, things like that. So I tell patients, if you have an unrelenting headache that doesn't go away with rest, hydration, pain medicine, if you have any of the symptoms that I mentioned before, visual changes, blurry vision, loss of vision, spots or dots in your vision, pain um, under your right breast, pain under the center of your, your breastbone, um, get to the nearest hospital. Even if you have a blood pressure cuff at home and you take your blood pressure and it's normal, I would prefer for patients to, to come in and be seen because sometimes blood pressure cuffs are not properly calibrated and you can get um, a misread. And definitely we don't want you to go home and to suffer anything bad. And the reason why preeclampsia is so bad because it's pre to eclampsia, which is seizure. Um, and sometimes women can even suffer stroke and ultimately women can die from preeclampsia. So definitely I tell my patients to take it very seriously. I'd rather see you reassure you that everything is okay by checking your blood pressures, getting blood work, treating your headache, and then sending you home knowing that you're fine than to, you to, to stay at home and have these symptoms and potentially run the risk of something really bad happen. Thank you for joining me on Cultured Women's Rebirth podcast today. You're my very first guest. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I did. I did. And I hope this um, this episode will be helpful to a lot of women um, and it will be an open door for them to start the conversation with their own doctors about protecting their health, uh, advocating for themselves and um, reducing morbidity and mortality in our communities. Yes. So Dr. Hunter has offered us a wealth of information. So I hope my listeners have enjoyed themselves as well. If you are interested in hearing more stories, please give us a visit at www.culturedwomensrebirth.com. Share, subscribe, and review if you'd like. And in the meantime, bask in the culture. <laughs>